day, everyone. Hello, hello. Welcome to Community Echoes. Thank you so much for joining us today. Unfortunately, Phyllis Warren can't be here with us and uh, got Reg on the board today. Hey, Reg, how's it going? Good. Right on, right on. Good to have you. Well, hey, did you know that it's Nelson Mandela's birthday today? I did not know that. It is. It is. And uh, what a wonderful guy and absolutely so important to this world. Uh, a very fine president that people should check out and look into and just uh, get to know a little more about this fellow because he is quite magnanimous. Uh, we have a great show today. And what it is about is about the B.C. highest court that upheld the 2020 lower court decision rejecting arguments of B.C.'s ban on extra billing and private insurance. It happened. It's called the Camby decision. And today we have uh, Mr. Andy Lawhurst with us, who is with the uh, B.C. Health Coalition as a policy analyst and researcher. Hi, Andy. Thanks for coming on the show today with us. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. You're very, very welcome. So this is a um, this is a monumental, monumental moment for British Columbia. We may not realize it. Um, us within the field of medicine and uh, Medicare and healthcare in general know this, but um, can you explain a little bit as to how this is such an important decision for the province of British Columbia? Sure. Yeah. Well, this is a long. This has been a long-running uh, legal uh, challenge. Uh, it goes back to uh, 2009, in fact. Um, and at issue has been um, uh, extra billing. So this is a practice where um, physicians and surgeons uh, charge patients beyond the fees that they're paid by the public plan, which is ca- called the medical services plan or MSP, that's their public insurance plan in British Columbia, um, and also um, the, the legislative ban on um, private duplicative uh, health insurance. So that is private insurance that covers medical services that are uh, already covered by the public insurance plan by MSP. And then finally, um, the other uh, piece of legislation or, or legal protection um, that upholds um, public health care, which has been at issue in this longstanding case, uh, has been uh, the ban on dual practice. So that's when doctors are paid by both the public plan and private payers, either through out-of-pocket by charging patients directly or through private insurance. And what um, the the plaintiffs in this case um had um, argued is that these sections of BC's Medicare Protection Act um, infringed upon um, uh, British Columbians' constitutional rights, and they cited uh, Section 7 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which is um, the right to um, uh, safety, uh, security, and, uh, sorry, the right to life, liberty, and security of the person. Um, And so, what has um, uh, what the what the highest court, as you said, um, decided? The BC Court of Appeal in BC on Friday, in their judgment, um, they upheld um, the BC Supreme Court's 2020 uh, decision, uh, in which they said um, the the legislation um, that is at question here um, does not. Um, does not infringe upon the rights of, of British Columbians under the Charter. Uh, and in fact, what the lower court said in that um, extensive 
plus page decision, one of the most complex and longest uh, rulings in the history of the BC Supreme Court, um, was that uh, a, a duplicative private, uh, privately financed or, or funded healthcare system would actually uh, create longer waits in the public system, and it would drain um, those limited. Uh, resources from the public system into the private system for those who could pay. And that's uh, fundamentally at odds with um, the intent of of the Canada Health Act and our legislation here in BC, uh, which is to provide health care uh, based on one's medical need and not their ability to pay. So really, it is, um, like you said, a monumentous decision. And I think it uh, is really important that the the BC Court of Appeal recognized um, the strong evidence that was brought forward at the lower court, at the trial level. And the Court of Appeal, in their judgment, while there were some differences in opinions between the justices, there were three justices um, that, uh, that ruled on this and dismissed the appeal, um, but that said, they didn't challenge the um, the facts that were established at the trial level, um, and um, they they had some uh, really important uh, language in this appeal uh, as to the importance of upholding um, BC's legislation. That is really uh, what underpins uh, public health care in this province. Right on, and that's uh, all good for us that that has happened. So we have access to medical care, but it's on different levels as it is right now. I mean, uh, there are people who need medical services that aren't paid for through the system. Are they able to access uh, through Medicare? Are they... uh, is this going to open a door to be able to access people to more medical care than uh, before? How will this change since we're partway down this path of paying some doctors and not others? How will this affect patients? Yeah, so it's this, this decision comes certainly, I think, at a really complex and challenging time for public health care in BC and across the country. Uh, there's absolutely no question about that. And, and it's important to note here that in, at the, at both the trial level and in the, in the, um, judgment from the Court of Appeal, uh, the fact that long wait times in the public system are an issue um, was acknowledged and 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 certainly identified as something that um, is at issue, and so with this decision, um, it's really important to to reflect on that. And I think more than anything, rather than just see this as a victory for public health care, it also needs to be seen as a wake up call for provincial governments and for the federal government as well as health authorities. And, and those that are in um, a variety of different positions within our healthcare system uh, to understand the importance of improving our public healthcare system. So we are at a challenging time. There's no question about that. We have uh, a real primary care crisis in our province and in other parts of this country. Uh, we have rolling uh, closures and, and diversions in emergency departments across uh, especially smaller um, communities in, in the interior and uh, also in, in northern British Columbia. 
Um, and we have long wait times for emergency care and challenges accessing primary care uh, in our in our larger urban centers as well. So it is not a time, I think, to pat ourselves on the back and, and say, well, uh, great, you know, no problems here. Um, and in fact, the BC Health Coalition and many researchers and advocates for decades now have been arguing that um, we need to be improving uh, access to, to surgical uh, to surgeries. We need to improve access to primary care. Uh, we need to really strengthen the system, and and that's really at the center of what um, this case has been about in terms of looking at the evidence. Um, that 800-page ruling that we saw from the um, from Justice Steves at the, at the BC Supreme Court level, uh, which was um, uh, really affirmed by the Court of Appeal, uh, discussed the fact that there are actually evidence-based solutions um, that are that are among us, and that in some ways the provincial government and other provinces have been implementing. Um, but looking at the evidence and a large body of it um, from both in Canada and internationally, we know that by expanding, by moving to a two-tier system, uh, that actually doesn't solve wait times in the public system. It has the exact opposite. Exactly. And so I think that's the important takeaway from this is um, not to dismantle our public health care system in an effort to try to improve it or improve timely access to care, but to look at those solutions, take them seriously, and 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 really treat this as an urgent call to action. Um, and I think that's exactly what the BC Health Coalition and what researchers and many advocates have been arguing for. So I think that's what we hope to see going forward. Absolutely. And I'm glad that you brought up the fact that, excuse me, this has been going on for decades. Uh, The NDP, they had a bit of a plan back pre-2000. They were doing, you know, somewhat pretty good. But then the Liberals came in and then we had Shirley Bond come with all her um, preventative medicine and uh, their concept of multidisciplinary teams doing medicine and things like that. And the Liberals evolved the system to a point now where the NDP has it and they're trying to go back to their old ways when everything's been it's a very very confusing time there are clients that aren't being able to access services uh, that's been an ongoing thing. Uh, how do we, is it through via billing? Is it, uh, we have doctors unions that protect doctors, um, in situations that they perhaps may cause a malfeasance. There's the private doctors who I have a friend who personally went in for a knee operation. It ended up being a disaster in the private system. He paid $15,000 for it and then he ended up infected for months and months back on the private private system with three more operations. So I think there's things that people don't realize that happen within the system. And when they do happen to them, it's so personal that they are truly unable to do anything about it. And they're just standing back going, oh, my God, what is going on here? So is it a billing access problem? Is it it's it's not a law problem because we can't be dealing with health as a legal issue the same way as we can't be dealing with it as a 
for-profit issue. So perhaps could we look at something, let's say, like a blockchain technology of accountability where uh, doctors, uh, funding providers, everybody, uh, therapists, all kinds of treatments so that we're cure-oriented. Right now, we just seem to be, um, you know, everybody has reasonable, what they want to call reasonable access to care, which I personally feel it is not. That's what we are constitutionally guaranteed uh, federally, as you'd mentioned the earlier provincial um, constitution. But what what do you think about that? How can we how can we embrace this and and positively move forward with all the checks and balances that are so important? Yeah, well, you know, healthcare policy is is I think it's a very complex uh, area of public policy and. I think we're really seeing we've seen that with uh, the pandemic. But I, I think I would I would say three things uh, in response to your question. I think first of all, um, you know, there, there's no question that our public health care system has been under strain uh, prior to the pandemic. Uh, but I think the ongoing pandemic has really um, created unprecedented strain on our health care system, and and that's. You know, in in large part, um, because our healthcare systems are made up of people. They're made up of dedicated um, healthcare professionals and workers who um, are get tired, just like all of us. And I think Truly. one of the big issues right now um, is the fact that we are now in going into the seventh wave um, from the the Omicron variant uh, BA five, and we really haven't had a break. Um, and I think one of the issues going forward is if we're to sustain public health care, and this is, we can see this happening in all countries that have moved away from mitigations to help mitigate the spread of, of this virus. Um, it continues to place uh, severe strain on health systems globally. Um, so I think First of all, we have to take a more thoughtful approach and a more um, evidence-based approach to continuing to manage the ongoing pandemic. Uh, it's very much COVID-19 is very much still with us, um, and in fact, we don't have we're not using the tools that um, that we have used previously. Uh, this is not, and I want to be very clear, it doesn't mean um, you know stay-at-home orders or lockdowns. But what it means is being more thoughtful moving forward about what are the tools that we need to keep in our toolbox and use them going forward so that we can um, avoid uh, staffing closures of hospitals or healthcare services because too many people are off sick um, or caring for family members who are sick. How do we maintain access to BC ferries without cancellations, which we're seeing a lot of? Mm -hmm. All of these vital public services and and our and our economic activities are being affected by um, the the un, unmitigated transmission of this virus. So I think reflecting on that and and what that strategy looks like is vaccines, um, but not just vaccines. So a vaccine plus strategy of using masks uh, strategically in congregate settings, cleaning indoor air where we sh we share air and breathe air in the same spaces because this is an airborne virus. And then also using testing widely and also uh, including income and and social supports for people that are affected. So I just want to start and say that's that needs to be sort of how we how we help 
and sustain our healthcare system is the stress that it continues to weather um, is not sustainable going forward. So that's the first piece. The second piece is we need to see improvements that are long overdue in terms of modernizing our public health care system. And what that means is, is not necessarily increased funding, but changing the way of how we deliver services to be more efficient and effective with our existing resources. Absolutely, so, because so that, uh, yeah. it is yeah. quite ineffective um, financially right now, and and it's uh, skewed in a, a very strange way. I mean, we're forced into services that we don't necessarily need, or they will pay for some, but they won't pay for others. Uh, there's issues to do with... Um, availability of services to people that that need to be taken into account let's say unions um chipping in how 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 sorry for interrupting i guess i'll let you carry on with what you were going no on i with. mean it, I, I would say um at, at our foundation we need to have a good primary care system that's a foundation of any health system um and that's really been neglected in many ways, um, and, and it's certainly not just an issue in BC, but it's very acute in BC. So that means, again, um, moving away from delivering primary care. We, we've been hearing a lot about the crisis and in, in, or the family doctor shortage, but what we really have challenges with in BC is a is a is an a crisis of access to primary care. Mm-hmm. So moving towards team based models of care where. Physicians are, are, are not necessarily just paid um, based on a fee-for-service or basically per, per visit or per procedure they're paid, but looking at ways of, of paying for primary care that better align with the goals of providing more comprehensive access to care. And there's a lot of great models like community health centers, we have examples in Ontario from uh, teams of primary care providers and team-based clinics. Um, we can look internationally as well. So moving from primary care, then the issue of surgical wait times. Um, and how do we tackle that? That means looking at making the best available use of, of our operating rooms. Um, some of these improvements have been done in BC um, and really optimizing how our our hospitals are able um, to, to provide access to procedures um, across the province. And there are some things like um, operationally changing the way that surgeries are delivered. So, for example, in some larger um, hospitals, we've seen really great models where um, surgical teams are able to move from one operating room to another seamlessly where there's no downtime. And those sort of periods of downtime where you're waiting for an operating room to be cleaned and for um, instruments to be uh, reprocessed, that creates a downtime, which means that you're not able to perform as many surgeries in a day that you might otherwise if, for example, you have two or three operating rooms moving seamlessly, so those team, those surgical teams can move from one patient to the next without downtime. So that's one example of an operational efficiency. That's, um, and, that's, uh, yeah. and uh, we have the operations, but are patients recovering? This is an issue. There's no follow-up therapies that are accessible in a lot of places and a lot of ways to, for people. I mean, we may be getting the operations full, but are people able to recover? Andy, we got to take a quick break right now. Sure. We're speaking with Andy Lawhurst from the BC Health Coalition 
speaking on the uh, ruling that uh, supports our Medicare. Find out what's happening in and around Prince George for the latest community events and happenings. Tune in to After 9 weekday mornings at 9 o'clock on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Your host for the day will interview everybody from local politicians to cultural contributors and a whole lot more. Stay in the know with After 9 weekday mornings at 9 o'clock only here on 93.1 CFIS-FM. If you miss the live broadcast, catch the repeats every Sunday to Thursday night at 10. If you're affected by dementia, you're not alone. The Alzheimer's Society of BC offers in-person and virtual support groups for caregivers and people living with early symptoms of dementia. Learn, laugh, and help others through mutual understanding. For a listing of upcoming support group meetings or more information, visit alzbc.org. Registration is also available through the First Link Dementia Helpline at 1-800-936-6033. The Alzheimer's Society of BC Virtual Support Groups. Register one. Attend when you can. The Prince George Hospice Palliative Care Society has grief support services. Their family grief program supports grieving children, youth, and caregivers through three separate groups. There's one for children ages 6 to 12, one for youth ages 13 to 20, and one for parents and others who care for children. There's also a children's drop-in offered every Tuesday from 3 to 4.30 and one-on-one adult grief support available on the phone or in person. For more information, visit the Hospice Society website at pghpcs.ca. Forecast from Environment Canada for today, cloudy. A 30% chance of showers this afternoon with wind from the southwest at 20K, gusting to 40, a high of 20. Tonight, cloudy with a 40% chance of showers, becoming partly cloudy after midnight. The risk of a thunderstorm this evening with gusting west winds becoming light, a low of 11. On Tuesday, a mix of sun and cloud becoming cloudy in the afternoon. Wind from the southwest at 20, a high of 22 with a high UV index. Hello, we are back with Community Echoes and we're speaking with Andy Lawhurst, who is a policy analyst and researcher for Medicare and the BC Health Coalition. Thank you once again, Andy, for coming on. Great to be with you. Right on. Um, so you were saying prior to the break of uh, um, streamlining uh, op- uh, surgical uh opportunities and things like that so how can we continue to improve on this system that we have and we really need to yeah and one of one of the other areas where we've seen some progress but it's been limited and very localized and not done at a at a at a system or a provincial scale um, is moving towards um, centralized referrals. So uh, for those that um, have been referred to a specialist or a surgeon, often what happens is uh, you're referred from your primary care provider, if you have one, onto um, a surgeon's wait list. And and this creates um, inequities in wait times because often um, what we see is the weights between surgeons can vary quite dramatically um, from from one surgeon to the next in the same community um, or even, um, you know, w- within different surgeons uh, in larger communities. And so when we look at how we improve wait times and reduce um, uh, long waits and those that are waiting a particularly long amount of time, it means looking at centralized referrals where you're referred to a group of providers as opposed to waiting on one individual surgeon's wait list. And that's a way to streamline access so patients 
um, have the ability to get access to the consultation and the care that they need, and then go on to surgery if that's what they ultimately need. So we have some, again, some good models um, to look at. Um, where you know, and as you were talking about, where they're supported with a broader team of providers. So we know that upwards of 50% of patients who may be referred for um, hip or knee surgery in orthopedics um, don't actually go on to be surgical candidates. And so in those cases, that's an opportunity for, for example, an advanced practice physiotherapist to rapidly assess the patient and determine, you know, in consultation with the, the orthopedic surgeon, is this person a surgical candidate? And if not, how can we better support them with non-operative therapies? Um, and, and so these are ways to make sure that people who are waiting on surgical wait lists or for consultations um, are, are actually there and have an urgent need. Yes, and, and are, so are being offered some of form people, of service. Yeah, that are on the list, we get people to the care that they need faster. So these sort of operational efficiency to team-based models of care um, are exactly uh, the kind of things that we need to be moving towards. Yeah, yeah. And and there seems to be a bit of a breakup within the province of the different, um, uh, like Northern Health is slightly disassociated from uh, like our, our Northern Cancer Society up here is slightly separated from the BC Cancer Agency. What What is it that's going on with things like that? Is it, um, in, is this uh, judgment going to change that perhaps private clinical aspect of how uh, certain agencies are going to be doing business from here on in, or how, how is it uh, going to affect things like that? Well, so this judgment from the BC Court of Appeal um, upholds all of our current legislation in BC, and that's a really good thing in terms of ensuring that um, access is based on medical need and not ability to pay. Um, so it doesn't it doesn't say it doesn't say anything about or or tell government to do particular things about how to change the system or address uh, challenges. In that regard, it's just dismissing the appeal um, from the appellants, from um, Canby Surgeries Corporation, which is the private clinic in Vancouver that has been um, at the center of this and and, um, uh, led by um, Brian Day, the CEO of that clinic. So it doesn't change anything in terms of what it tells government to do. But I think the important thing here is government needs to take this judgment and um, act with urgency on integrating care better. I think that's one of the issues that you've raised is, you know, in many ways we have um, still quite a fragmented healthcare system in Canada. And that in large part has to do with the history of Medicare in this country. It emerged from hospital and physician services and um, it's evolved in a way that hasn't been particularly integrated when we look at um, some other models of care delivery. So, again, this issue of, of primary care access is really foundational um, and how primary care then links up to, uh, to specialist care and other um, models of specialized care like cancer care. And actually cancer care in B.C. is one of the one of the um, really good examples of a, a system that has 
um, more centralized planning. And in that way, it, it, I, I'm, I'm suggesting that we need to look at ways of delivering care across the board um, where there's much more planning involved. And so what we see in primary care, for example, and for many surgeons is they're, in essence, operating private businesses. Um, and that's because of a fee-for-service model of payment that goes back to the, the early days of Medicare in B.C. and in Canada. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's, uh, that's interesting. So there's a lot of work to be done here. And uh, you, exactly. by the sounds, yeah, at the, at the least, and uh, it sounds like you guys have done so much work. I have another uh, gentleman on the line. His name's Tom McGregor, and Tom gave uh, evidence in the court case, and he's going to join us and have a conversation with us about uh, exactly what happened in court and how his perspective to this came about, and uh, I'd like you to join in on the conversation to add or, or ask yeah. anything that that you may think. Hi, Tom, and thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Thank you for the work you've done with uh, with putting out this uh, information in the court system to help us all in this province. We owe you a great debt. Well, thanks. I think it's an important uh, for all of us Canadians to protect our health care system because I know that um, Dr. Brian Day and his wealthy backers simply want to line their pockets, and, and they'll do so at the expense of the truly, truly vulnerable Canadian citizens. Yes, and they have been doing so for a fair little while now under the uh, hospice of the Liberal government. <laughs> um, it seemed it, it was a building toward this type of uh, a situation that they had kind of had an agenda towards, and, and thank goodness it's managed to come to somewhat of a, a conclusion here. Um, well, unfortunately, I don't know that it has come to a conclusion, because I'm, I'm quite sure that uh, Day and his backers will be taking this to the Canadian Supreme Court now, and will be wasting more money and more resources defending what the courts have already clearly said is a Canadian right to access our health care, and that a, a two-tiered system would certainly hurt it. Yes, we we already have a bit of a two-tiered system with uh, ICBC and WCB, and then there's another nightmare in itself, um, you know, dealing with uh, sloughing off their costs to the Medicare system, which has created a huge deficit within it as well. Um, so what it boils down to is these people are for-profit medicine, and what Medicare is is we do not want to have uh, profit made on the backs of our suffering is what we're asking as Canadians. Is that correct? Well, that and the fact that, you know, it's not like any other kind of consumable good. It's a it's a very elite uh, piece of knowledge, the human body and, uh, and how it reacts. And, and to have it uh, to go onto a market system like that, I mean, we've seen how this works in America. We've seen how this works in other countries. It comes down to the HMOs and the insurance companies, yes. and they're trying to make a buck, too, and they, they are, are very much uh, reliant on denying claims on uh, pre-existing conditions or, or just denying claims in general to, to make their stockholders happy. Absolutely, which is a consistent and ongoing issue, sloughing stuff back onto our Medicare system, which creates uh, uh, great, great devices between patients, doctors, um, everything. It's it's uh, it's a very difficult. Andy, do you see uh, things like that with uh, what you're dealing with with policy? 
Well, certainly in in uh, in Justice Steve's uh, judgment in 2020, which was uh, upheld on the, in, at the BC Court of Appeal on Friday, uh, much of that evidence was brought um, to bear, just in terms of hearing from expert witnesses uh, who have been at the forefront of of uh, analyzing the effects of privately financed healthcare. Um, and how it actually exacerbates wait times in the public system. And so we can look at countries like uh, England, we can look at Australia, we can look at New Zealand, uh, we can look certainly at uh, the U.S. Um, for examples of countries that have introduced uh, privately funded or financed health care um, and that has expedited access for those who have deeper pockets. Um, and it's created, as Tom said, it's created a market for, for healthcare provision. And what we see in countries that have experimented with greater private financing of healthcare is it shifts resources um, from the public system to the private system. And, um, and this is what came out in, in, has come out through this court case is the fact that wait times get longer as surgeons um, and other healthcare providers will spend more of their time in the sector where it's more lucrative to work. And so that's really at the center of this case is, is profit making. Um, and I think that needs to be um, rejected. And that it's very, it's, it's, it's welcome news that the Court of Appeal has rejected that because those resources do shift over into the private system. And we will, uh, if, it, you know, if, if the plaintiffs were successful um, in this case and, and their, their appeal wasn't dismissed, um, we would have seen the introduction of, um, you know, of, of private insurance into this country. So it's still, a, it's still an unfolding story, as Tom said. It's, um, it, the, the appellants have said they plan to appeal again to the Supreme Court of Canada, um, so it's not over yet. But I think, um, you know, it's really, uh, we should be taking the evidence from those jurisdictions very seriously where we see a degradation of the public system because of the introduction of, of two-tier care. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's it's hard to fathom when you're speaking of two-tier care when we have employment uh, backup insurance. You know, we, we consistently and ongoing have commercials going on. Oh, come and get this health care. Tom, what does that mean to you when you, how do, how do you feel when you see all these advertisements for these health care um, insurances that you can buy? For one thing, I just might say before you stop, when you run out of money and you can't pay that monthly fee, you no longer have insurance, just so that you're aware, everybody out there. Sorry, Tom, go ahead. Well, there's that aspect. And, you know, I've been lucky enough in my time of employment to have health care insurance when I was working for as an advocate with the BC Coalition of People with Disabilities. And, you know, the health insurance was not the, a panacea. Like I said, they were very quick to deny claims. Yes. Very quick to, to, to make stipulations like one wheelchair per lifetime. Well, they know very well a wheelchair lasts five years. So insurance is not the way we want to look at, 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 at solving anything. That will just create another level of bureaucracy. It will create more confusion in the courts as we have people taking the insurance companies to courts. We really need to spend our time and energy looking at our health care system. It needs to be better. It can be made better. But 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 day and like a, a wolf in sheep's clothing shouldn't be taking our busy time, our money, and our resources and tying it up like this 
for his own profit when we need uh, so much work to be done. Absolutely. Uh, very well put. Thank you. That was that was wonderful. Um, so folks who aren't in the disability circle wouldn't really understand this. I mean, the vast majority of Canadians are healthy out there functioning and they go, well, what does this matter to me? So um, again, Tom, could you explain exactly why it matters to them? Well, you never know what's going to come up in life. And I guarantee you, if you live long enough, you will have an impairment. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that's just the way it is. So, uh, you know, it's not, it does, it's not about, it doesn't affect me because I'm healthy. Uh, it affects everybody. And if, and if you're so lucky as to get through life very healthy, I'm sure that somebody you know isn't. And, and so, you know, just as a matter of being a, a practical and caring individual, you really need to have a system where everybody can thrive, not where the, the rich 10% can thrive and the rest of us can go to hell. Yes, absolutely. And uh, apparently there were studies done in the past decade that actually show that 75% of the homelessness in British Columbia is due to WCB and ICBC rejections. So we're living in this time now where we've also just been thrown into a completely different system of... Um, dealing with accidental liability and such to do with Medicare. And as you said, these things tie up our courts, they tie up our social programs, they tie up everything that could be helping um, fighting about liability or, or cost or cause. Absolutely. Uh, how do you feel about that, Andy? Well, you know, I think um, the, the reality of what we need to be working towards in in our healthcare system in BC and across the country is a system that is um, much more focused around um, chronic disease management and um, and and better supporting people with disabilities. And I think that's one of the uh, it's been very much part of this case is the the fact that um, had the plaintiffs been successful at the trial level or at the BC Court of Appeal level that um, we would have seen um, the movement away from a system based on equity, um, uh, equity and access. So, and that's precisely what um, what, the, what the Court of Appeal justices said. Um, in you know, there were some differing opinions um, in how they and um, how they ruled, but ultimately they dismissed the appeal because of that fundamental um, principle that. Again, it needs to be based on need and not ability to pay. But I think um, your point is well taken. That you know, as it currently stands, we're not we're not doing enough to to move to a system where um, we care for one another. And I think that needs to be really central to um, the kind of society that we build. And we build that through our healthcare system. We build that through our workers' compensation system. Um, we build that. I think we're very lucky in British Columbia to actually have a public insurer in terms of ICBC and moving towards a no-fault system where um, you're able to um, to better access um, the healthcare supports you need. Well, but again, that's yet to be seen because it's I've all uh, far from perfect. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I have to agree. I'm not, I'm not a fan of no-fault insurance at all. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the uh, system of uh, payment is not. Uh, I've seen a lot of downfalls that I've seen people get, you know, a, a certain payment for their condition, but then their condition worsens or changes or develops over time, and there's 
there's no 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 recourse for them. Absolutely. Well, gentlemen, we got to take a quick break, and can we come back, both of you, after a couple of minute break here, and we will continue this very important conversation. Happy to yeah. learn the importance of advanced planning and what older adults should know about wills, powers of attorney, and representative agreements. Wednesday, July twenty seventh, at your Prince George Public Library. Presented by lawyers Trevor Slaney and Carolyn Burkholder James. Space is limited for this free two hour seminar. Register by calling the Seniors Resource Center at two five zero five six four five triple eight. Estate and incapacity planning. A free information seminar. Wednesday, July twenty seventh, from one to three at your public. Library. Learn to make summer tea with the latest Icebark installment of Food is Medicine on YouTube. In part three of the Tea with Fee miniseries, Fiona will show you how to create her favorite summer tea with natural ingredients like rose, calendula, St. John's wort, and mint. This wonderful mixture will help support your digestive system and lift your spirit. Check out this and other installments from the Food is Medicine series on Icebark, Indigenous Sport BC channel at youtube.com. The Alzheimer Society of BC is continuing their series of online webinars. Everyone is encouraged to learn more about dementia and its stark impact on Canadians through their website, alzbc.org. While there, you can also register for their free webinars or watch previous presentations. The next webinar is an introduction to brain health, Wednesday from 2 to 3. The Alzheimer Society of BC, bringing you support and information for dementia at alzbc.org. Forecast from Environment Canada for today, cloudy. A 30% chance of showers this afternoon with wind from the southwest at 20K, gusting to 40, a high of 20. Tonight, cloudy, the 40% chance of showers becoming partly cloudy after midnight. The risk of a thunderstorm this evening with gusting west winds becoming light, a low of 11. On Tuesday, a mix of sun and cloud becoming cloudy in the afternoon. Wind from the southwest at 20, a high of 22 with a high UV index. Good day. Hello. We are here. We're having a great conversation with Mr. Andy Lawhurst of the BC Health Coalition, as well as a Mr. Tom McGregor, who was a uh, independent patient intervener in the Camby case that came through on Friday and a positive note for our Medicare system. So um, who would like to start with with a with a comment from here? Tom or Andy? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm throwing it out there for <laughs> so how about it Tom you go go for it and uh, say what you think is the most important thing out of this whole case that came out on Friday well I think the important thing is that, that, that more than one court has realized and it's been backed up twice now by two other courts that, that, that our healthcare system um, in the sense needs to remain universal access and it's a very important uh, principle within the system. It's one of the very important things, I think, that makes us distinct as Canadians. And I'm very proud that we have a universal health care system, albeit not perfect, needs some work. Yes, that is the truth. Yeah, and I think um, just to, to build on what Tom said, I think it really underscores the need to talk about the unfinished business of public health care in Canada. Um, we have a lot of work to be done around timely access to surgeries, and I, and I think there's been a lot that has been highlighted um, through this court case around the need for provincial and federal governments to focus on that. Uh, but it also, I think, it's worth pointing out that, you know, a number of um, the 
uh, other countries internationally, um, especially, it's, it's funny, ones that um, we hear um, the, the plaintiffs have, have also or have often raised um, just in talking about private insurance and privately financed care. Those are actually countries that spend more as a public share on health care and on social services and social programs than Canada does. And so I think that's really important to keep in mind in this conversation that it's not just what ails our health care system uh, can't necessarily be fixed just in medical care, but we need to look upstream from that. And that means looking at proper income supports and um, disability supports, and it means looking at things like um, at, uh, housing security and the fact that we have a, a large and growing issue of, um, of people who don't have secure housing, and, and that creates health issues when you're either without secure housing um, or, you know, you're in housing that uh, is, you know, has all kinds of environmental health issues. So I think all of these issues, you know, food security, access to good quality food, all of these are determinants of health. And yes. so I think through this, it's really important to also not lose focus that these are areas where um, if we want to improve health care access, by keeping people healthy in the first place, we have to address poverty and inequality. Truly, absolutely, and uh, it's it's of utmost importance. Uh, absolutely, Tom, you uh, could speak to this as well. You are a. Oh. Go ahead. Sorry. One one quick way I think the uh, Canadian healthcare system could could save some money is by providing better home support. I mean, the the the, the, the once you're released from any kind of hospital or, or or acute care situation, uh, you're left kind of on your own. I'm a, I'm a user of home support services. And really, um, I, I know that if I provided better care, I would use the hospital less. There's, there has been some extended stays in hospital that weren't necessary because of lack of home support. And, and it's just the cost of treating people at home and giving them the dignity to, to live at home. For those, again, as Andy said, that have homes, I mean, we need to, to look at this in a holistic situation. And it would just save a lot of money and be a more compassionate system. Absolutely. Uh, most definitely. Um, it's uh, not sufficient or efficient enough as it, as it is. And, and I think for a lot of people, as I said, a vast majority of the population don't understand these problems or not necessarily trivialize them, but they are, are not compassionate towards it. But this thing with COVID now has brought it around to show the in, ineffectu- ineffectuality of how some of our systems are are just not simply functioning for a good portion of the people and and some people that have never been threatened with homelessness or food loss or or anything like that are have now with covid had to have a look at that it's it's uh hopefully that will help evolve people's thinking to to what you're saying Andy as a more compassionate society yeah, absolutely. I think it really speaks to the need to look at our income support systems in in, in BC and Canada. 
Uh, we have income assistance and disability assistance rates that are completely inadequate to keep people out of poverty. They don't reflect the true cost of housing or cost of living. Um, and so these are areas where, you know, a tremendous amount, and you can talk to any healthcare worker, <laughs> any doctor, um, especially in emergency medicine, and they will tell you, um, you know, a large share of what they are seeing in emergency departments and what um, is a huge uh, demand on healthcare services um, is treating the downstream effects of poverty and inequality in our society. So, again, by addressing those issues at the root cause, it would go a long way towards uh, reducing pressure on our hospitals, Absolutely. on our primary care clinics, etc. Absolutely. And a uh, highly functional uh, WCB system and insurance corporation system would help with that, would it not, uh, Tom? With uh, You were saying that you weren't too impressed with the no-fault issue. Well, yeah, things like that. I mean, uh, my work with an advocate has been a long time uh, spending uh, trying to make, uh, you know, uh, the insurance companies and and governments really look at themselves and, and, and help out from more of the client's perspective. Uh, I just think that uh, there's not enough of that. There's not a lot of, uh, of uh, level-headed thinking. Sometimes I've seen government spend thousands of dollars taking something to tribunal um, um, that maybe costs hundreds of dollars. So it's just, it just doesn't make sense. Absolutely. Not only a more compassionate answer, but just dollars and cents. Absolutely. And uh, there's systems of uh, controlling these uh, types of services like unions and such that play a big role in, in uh, you know, delving out these little bits of work that they do. So how could they become more integrated in helping the system become a little more functional? I think that's a better question for Andy, for sure. <laughs> okay. Andy, how do you feel about that? Well, I think in, in terms of um, maybe ask your question again. Okay. Um, so we have a lot of uh, systems of control. There's the financial systems. There's also union regulations and standards that we need to live up to. Do some of those uh, union standards need to be maybe brought down a little bit? Like, let's say, bring back candy stripers or develop a uh, nursing program with the high schools where people can actually become involved and, and uh, would give our youth some kinds of issues. Uh, th- this needs to start somewhere in the... Uh, in the in the school stages, I would suspect. Well, I think in terms of like in in terms of the healthcare workforce, um, you know, in, ensuring that we have um, the appropriate workforce means uh, appropriate post secondary training opportunities, uh, and we've seen a, a big effort on that side, just in terms of um, training more healthcare. Um, Workers and, and healthcare professionals across the system, but I think it also needs to be um, ensuring that we're not we're not having people burn out. And I think that's in large part what we're seeing increasingly now is um, you know going into two and a half plus years of the pandemic, and um, you know there is just a huge um, burden placed on people that are in healthcare, and so. It, it means being smarter with how we manage the ongoing pandemic, as I mentioned earlier in the hour. Um, and also, again, going back to this issue of what 
what is adding to strain on our healthcare system. Um, it means looking at things like Tom mentioned, looking at much better um, system of home care and home support. And um, in, in BC, that system is, is not meeting the needs of a lot of people, especially people with disabilities and, and older adults. Um, and that would go a long way to help relieving some of the pressure on on our hospitals. Again, one of our our biggest challenges around surgical wait times is having enough beds. Um, and so when we have too many people who are admitted to hospital because there are no other appropriate supports in the community, um, those surgeries get cancelled because there are bed shortages. So this has been raised again and again, um, and and it means really getting serious about improving access to these uh, types of uh, services and supports in our in our public health care system. Absolutely, um, Tom. We were talking about. Uh uh, oh my God, my brain just went blank on me here. Uh, basically, you were saying that, which is a huge uh, topic for me, where uh, the protecting things like WCB and ICBC are, are fighting about treating people and creating judicial issues. Could you Could you kind of extrapolate on that a little bit? Well, you know, when you first... My my understanding and my my experience is when people first make a claim to ICBC, they're not given uh, a proper assessment. You know, you can basically uh, I have a, uh, I always tell clients don't assume ICBC is your friend. Mm-hmm. Go in with a very jaundiced eye of what they're they're offering you, and if you can at all, bring legal help. And that's an an awful way to have to start. Well, that and, journey into disability and and that's impossible right now. We 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 can't get legal help with them exactly. and, unless you have a broken bone. A lawyer won't even talk to you. So so we, we're going to have a, a waft of um, injured people wandering around. Um, we used to call it the walking wounded basically back in the day when I was vice president of the Northern Association of Injured and Disabled Workers. This has been going on and on and on forever. These liability systems. So do we really need to initially look at these systems of control for our medical on the basis of um, denying and accepting claims and actually uh, say, why are you denying claims when you're a no-fault insurance? That's what I don't understand. How can you be a no-fault insurance company and deny a claim based on fault? Right, and most of the people denying the claims don't have a medical expertise. Although no. I know that they they they... they they refer it out, but let's face it, they have, they have a, a few group of doctors that kind of continuously find in favor of, of whatever their masters are saying needs to be said. Absolutely. And uh, and in follow-up to that, you end up um, uh, having a legal advisor. So not only do you have um, someone telling the adjudicator as a medical advisor who isn't always necessarily a doctor, and if they are, uh, we won't talk about that, um, it, uh, <laughs> the, uh, then that gets passed on to if, the, if they can't get a satisfactory answer, the adjudicator, they will go to a legal advisor and ask for a legal opinion on a medical condition that they have no idea about. So, so we have to struggle within ourselves to look at these systems, I believe, to uh, root out exactly what it is that is causing these holdbacks. And uh, is there any um, 
Well, we've got the SaveMedicare.ca. Um, we've got the coalition here that, that you folks are, are adjoined to. But how can we learn to fight this horrid enemy of denial? Well, I always say uh, it starts with letting your elected officials know how you feel about things and making sure that you're, in this case, MLA, knows that health care is an important issue to you and, and that you do want to see changes for the better and, and that you want to make it more people-friendly instead of dollar-conscious. Absolutely, which this court ruling has just told us it is our right to do. That's right. I'm very grateful that the courts did their job. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Andy, do you have uh, something you'd like to say to wrap the show up? We've got about four more minutes here before we have to sign off air, and then I'll get back to you, Tom. Sure, yeah. I, I think um, I think people should check out uh, SaveMedicare.ca if they're interested in hearing uh, or learning more about uh, this this uh, marathon uh, court case. And I think also the BC Health Coalition website, that's bchealthcoalition.ca, um, and that's where you can learn more about the advocacy work that the um, nonprofit, nonpartisan um, BC Health Coalition is engaged in, and one of those um, ongoing and um, really important priorities is strengthening primary health care. And I think a lot of the issues that that uh, we've touched on today uh, do really, you know, I think speak to the importance of having access to a regular. Um, whether it's a, a family physician or a nurse practitioner or a team of providers, I think speaks to the importance of having the access to that care and support where where most of your um, health care and, and social needs are being met it's in terms of social supports and, um, and social determinants of health are being met as well. So I think there's an opportunity to really address those issues, and, and I think it's more urgent than ever. And I think, um, you know, building on what we've learned um, through this court case and the facts that have come out around, um, you know, the importance of timely access to care, uh, I think it is a real uh, call to action uh, for our provincial government, our health authorities, our federal government, um, our elected officials, as Tom mentioned. Um, to really take um, the issues and the challenges that are in front of us very seriously. Um, and I'd like to say that, you know, there is, there's a lot of discussion about health care funding, and I think there is, that is definitely an overdue conversation. Um, but many of these issues are not just an issue about funding. We need to look about how we integrate and better improve the way that our health care system uh, delivers care, and, and much of that work takes political will, and it takes um, often takes uh, multiple years to achieve improvement. So Truly. governments need to not lose sight, and they need to take that work very seriously. Wonderful. That was awesome, Andy. Thank you very much. Thank you for being on the show, and thank you for all the work you do. It was a really great conversation, and I hope to have you back. So what do you think, Tom, for the last little bit of uh, the section my here? Last, my last thoughts would be that uh, they and his candy group are wolves in sheep's clothing, and I think it's very cynical of them to say that they're there to uh, to stop the suffering of people uh, when really what they're motivated by is, is profit and their own their own greed. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And uh, thank you so much for being on. Uh, and as well as you, Andy, I appreciate it. I hope you had a good time today and uh, was able to put out everything that you'd hope to and thank you so much Tom for everything you've done and hopefully you can come back on the show one day and we can carry on this conversation probably in five years when the Supreme Court's done (laughs) (laughs) thanks for your time thanks for your time no problem no problem thank you both that was Andy Lawhurst uh, BC Health Coalition policy analyst and researcher as well as Tom McGregor contributor uh, actually uh, a client contributor to the uh, court case of the Camby case in Vancouver which we have a win at so far so yay thanks for joining me today on Community Echoes you all take care out there bye for now this is 93.1 CFIS FM in Prince George, proudly supported by community groups like the BC Old Time Fiddlers.